go ahead and be seated and grab those Bibles and let's open them up to Romans chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul has made it clear that all men are held accountable before God. The only way for us to experience peace with God is to receive the reward of eternal life by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. And so in chapter 1, the Apostle has presented a severe indictment against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Bringing This indictment brings everyone before the tribunal of God and finding them guilty of having rejected natural revelation. Natural revelation is the, the knowledge that God has made available unto everyone. This natural revelation makes known God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature. Now we get into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the Apostle shifts his attention to self-righteous moralists. Look at verse number 1. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, by the time we get to verse number 17, it becomes evidently clear that Paul is addressing those remarks to the Jews from verse 17 on. But what isn't so abundantly clear is to whom is Paul addressing in these first 16 verses? Some people think that Paul was addressing his remarks to certain Gentiles who were known for their superior morality. Other people hold to the opinion that these verses are are addressed to Jewish people who were inclined to look down at others with an attitude of self-righteousness. My personal belief is that verses 1 through 16 is talking or addressing all self righteous moralists, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And when you get to verse number 17, Paul begins to specifically address the Jewish community because they had wrongfully assumed that their national identity was sufficient enough for them to be provided a right standing before God. To the very things that they were condemning in others, they themselves were practicing. So in condemning others for their sins, the self-righteous moralists were condemning themselves. Therefore, Paul declares, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. The evidence is clear that everyone and the entire human race has turned away from God and has committed sins. All of us. And in fact, the only difference in our sin is the difference in frequency, extent, and degree. 
but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so not only that, the entire human race, especially self-righteous moralists, they stand condemned before God and have absolutely no excuse because of God's judgment. And in our text this morning, we're going to discover two key attributes about the judgment of God. We're going to see that God's judgment is based upon His divine standard of truth and His divine standard of impartiality. Truth will discover from verses 2 through 4. His impartial attitude will discover from verses 5 to 11. Let's begin with the truth. Verse 2 continues. And he says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Notice he says, and we know. This was common knowledge. It's not a surprise. In other words, we are all aware of the fact that when God condemns sin, He condemns it rightly. He condemns it justly. And so what do we know? He says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So we know that God's judgment rightly falls upon others. Which means God makes no mistakes when executing His judgment. There's no possibility that He would make an error in carrying out His judgment. There's absolutely no possibility of Him being a biased judge who will overlook the evidence, what the evidence reveals. The judgment of God rightly falls. Verse 2, so it goes into verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? In God's eyes, sin is a matter of heart and mind. It's not just an act that's carried out in and of itself. See, the thoughts and the desires of a person can make that person just as guilty before God as an act that's carried out in the presence of other people. And God knows that many would carry out their thoughts and their desires if only they had the courage or the opportunity to. God knows the heart. God knows our mind. I mean, God knows our thoughts. So sin, whether they be acts carried out in public or thoughts of our mind, they fall short of the glory of God. And everyone stands before God guilty. So therefore, the the self-righteous moralist who, who like to condemn and judge other people, they are just as guilty as the one to whom they judge. Verse 3 says, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself. This is a repetition of thought that he already expressed in verse number 1. 
this, this repetition of thought is meant to, to help the, the self-righteous honestly see the, the naked truth about themselves. That when you're condemning these things in others, but you're doing the same things in your own life that you're condemning in others. And, and notice the punchline to what Paul has to say. You who are doing these things, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? The wording here is emphatic. He's saying, do, do you think that you, you of all people, you who are guilty of doing the same things in which you're condemning in others, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, the reality is, they might think that they'll escape the judgment of God, but it ain't going to happen. It, it won't. In verse number 4, he says, Or do you think lightly of his riches, of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And you understand that by not executing his divine judgment upon humanity immediately, God is displaying the riches of his kindness, of his tolerance, and his patience. The kindness, tolerance, and patience of our God is not on display so that we can continue on in our cycle of sin and do whatever it is that we desire. No, His kindness and tolerance and patience is evident or is on display so that it might lead us unto repentance. So the purpose of His kindness, tolerance, and, and patience is to lead us to repent before Him. And I want you to notice the tragedy that occurs when we reject, deny, neglect, or ignore the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. Look how verse 5 continues. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are self, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also to the greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the jew first and also to the greek for there is no partiality with god First of all, I want you to notice in verse number 5 that God's wrath against people's sin is being stored up. It's being stored up like a great reservoir until the day when His, uh, when his wrath is poured out in righteous judgment. On that day when He pours out His wrath that He's been storing up, that He will pour that wrath out in accordance to what each individual has done which means god's judging upon humanity will be based upon the standard of truth 
and His judgment will be impartial to everyone. Eternal life will be given to those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek. Notice that in the text, it says, in perseverance, in doing good, seek. That's in the present tense. That means not only do you seek one time, but you keep on seeking for glory and honor and immortality. And on the other hand, His wrath and indignation will be given to the self, selfishly ambitious and the disobedient individuals. Which means a person's habitual conduct, whether that habitual conduct is good or evil, gives insight into the condition of that person's heart. It is possible for an unregenerate heart to do good things That's possible. It is not possible for a regenerated heart not to seek to do good things. And so eternal life is not the reward for good living or or, or for good works because that would contradict many other places in Scripture which clearly state that salvation is not by works. Salvation is of God's grace through faith to those who believe. I can't help but think of Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus at this point, where in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's not of your own doing. It is the result of a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one has the ability to boast about their salvation. So that being said, it's important to note that a person's doing good or a person's good works or good living shows that their heart has been regenerated or uh, the churchy terms that we use. It shows that their heart has been born again. That they've been born again. Such a person who's been redeemed by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that person shows through their good works that they are a person who has been the recipient of eternal life that only God grants to those who by faith put their faith and trust in His Son. On the other hand, the one who continually does evil the one that rejects the truth shows that they're not a child of God. And therefore, because they're not a child of God, they they stand as objects of God's wrath. And I want you to understand that that is a present condition. That's That's not just a future condition. Those who do not belong to God right now are objects of God's wrath. Jesus said it Himself in John chapter 3, verse number 36. He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Him. Going back to Romans chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, you'll, you'll notice that there's a phrase there about uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek in verse number 10. 
and what it's saying here is that this statement does not imply a special consideration to the Jews. Instead, what it's saying here is in light of this divine standard of impartiality, this statement emphasizes the entire human race will be dealt with by God. Jews and Gentiles, everyone. That's why he says in verse number 11, for there is no partiality with God. For all have sinned without the law. Look at verse 12. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Admittedly, uh, verses 11 through 15 can seem a bit confusing. I hope to be able to, to provide a little bit of clarity for you this morning. And so what do we know? What, what, are, what are some things that are, that are clear, that are evident in what he just said in, in verse number 12? Well, there are two things that become quite clear. First of all, the word law. The word law means the, the Mosaic law. The, the law of Moses that were given to, to the Jewish people through special revelation from God. That's the law. And, and so the second thing that becomes clear is that those who are apart from the law are the Gentiles or the Greek or the non-Jewish people. Those are the ones that are apart from the law, which means that those that are under the law, that, that refers to the Jewish people. And so Paul is making a great point of distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the Jewish people possess the special revelation of the law of God, while the Gentiles did not possess that special revelation. Now, verse number 13, Paul elaborates a little bit. So look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Which means, understand how synagogue services typically would happen. The, the Mosaic law would often be read as a part of a service that was held in the synagogue. And so, as that Mosaic law would be read, then it's the, the Jewish people are the ones that would be the hearers of the law. They've been hearing it. They've been listening to it. However, just because they heard it, just because they've been listening to it in their service, doesn't mean that they are just before God. Hearing the law doesn't declare a person righteous. It says those who will be justified or those who will be declared righteous before God are those who are not the hearers of the law, but those that are the doers of the law. James writes the same thought in his letter. In fact, James chapter 1, uh, verse 22 and 23, or actually 22 through 25, he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once... He has looked at himself and has gone away. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. 
verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, so again, let me, let me be really clear. Right? That God does not give eternal life. God does not declare someone just on the simple fact that they do good works or because they do good things. No, God gives eternal life. God declares a person just and righteous before Him if they will trust in His Son, believe in Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, that, that faith and that trust, then our heart begins to change and our desires change. And the evidence of that change is a desire and a pursuit of doing good works for the glory of God. We have been created to do good works. So God not only saves us from something, He saves us to something. He saves us to do the good works that we were created to do. And so, we get to verse number 14 and 15. Now here it becomes really, really difficult, and I'll I'll attempt. We'll we'll see how, how this goes. Hopefully, we'll have a little bit of clarity here. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. I believe that Paul chooses his words very carefully here twice in verse number 14 paul stressed the fact that non-jewish people had no specific knowledge of the mosaic law he uses the phrase who who do not have the law then he uses the phrase not having the law and yet these individuals who don't have the law in certain cases they they do instinctively the kinds of things that were required by the law. It doesn't list the kinds of things that they did that were required by the law. Uh, you know, perhaps they, they, they took care of the elderly, provided for the sick. I don't know, maybe they befriended or welcomed in a stranger. All we know is that instinctively, they were able to do some of the things that the law required. They were, as Paul put it, a law to themselves. This doesn't mean that the Mosaic law is irrelevant to them. No, it it shows that their conduct reveals a general knowledge of God's requirements for a moral life. So not only did God reveal Himself in nature back in chapter 1, right? But He created us all with a moral sense of obligation. And so this encourages a conduct that at many points will overlap what is taught within the law. 
So Paul is not saying that these Gentiles fulfilled the law perfectly. He is not saying that they did all the things that the law required. No, what he's saying is that there are times when the Gentiles acknowledged the moral duties that were revealed in the Mosaic law, and there were even times where they lived up to those moral duties. So, so moral Gentiles, by their action, show that the work of the law or the requirements of the law were written on their hearts. That's why Paul calls them a law to themselves. That they are a law to themselves does not mean that the Gentiles were free to create whatever moral standard of living that they desired and based upon their creation of their standard for living, God would have to hold them accountable to whatever it is that they created. That's That's not saying this at all. Rather, what it's saying is that they're a law to themselves in that their inner being bears at least the remnants of God's moral law. So whether or not one is fully aware of the Mosaic law, whether or not one has heard, listened, read through the Ten Commandments, it doesn't matter in the sense that we're all exposed to the law of God in some degree. Therefore, the law of God will be the basis of our judgment before Him. No one has an excuse. There's another aspect of human nature that's introduced here in verse number 15. I want you to see it. And that is of the conscience. The conscience. It says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Then he says, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The most important thing to know about the conscience, I believe, is knowing that the conscience is not the same thing as the law that was written on their hearts. Let me say it this way. The conscience has no content of its own. It is in itself not a source of knowledge about right or wrong. The conscience has no content. Rather, the conscience is an ability or a function. Specifically, conscience is the function of comparing our deeds with an acceptable standard of morality. So the conscience examines our deeds and passes judgment about our conduct. So the conscience originates no truth on its own. It either approves conformity to truth or to a standard of truth, or it condemns violations or variations from that standard of truth. It's extremely important to remember that whenever the knowledge of God and His law, whenever the knowledge of God's Word and His law, His standards, whenever that knowledge has been corrupted, whenever it has been suppressed, whenever it has been exchanged 
or whenever it has been violated in any way, the conscience will still continue to function, but it will not produce results that are trustworthy. The old practice of let conscience be your guide is very, very poor and dangerous theology. In reality, the conscience itself needs a guide. The, the conscience needs it's a standard to follow. And so the only trustworthy standard or guide for the conscience is the Word of God. And so, we stand without excuse in here, in this place, because we have His Word readily available in our lives. And so we can, we can hear it. We can, we can see it. We can read it. But it's not just about hearing His Word. It's about allowing His Word to change who we are And the evidence of that change is seen in how we live our lives. Notice in verse number 16, he wraps up this thought. And he says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So in this whole section from verses 1 through 16, God is seen as the sovereign judge over creation. And God dispenses His judgment to everyone on the basis of truth. God's absolute standards of truth are known unto everyone in some degree or another. And and so he says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. That practice means it's a, it's a habitual pattern in their lives. And so based upon that understanding, we know that God will punish the wicked, and we also know that God will reward the righteous. Our habitual conduct, whether it's good or evil, reveals the condition of our heart. It, it ought to reveal, it makes known. And so if we're a child of God, whose habitual conduct is sin, rebellion, stubbornness, an obstinate attitude towards the Word of God, then that claim to be His child is an incorrect claim. As God's children. It doesn't mean that we, that we practice righteousness perfectly. It doesn't mean that there are not going to be days, months, maybe even years of, of struggle and issues and problems. It's not saying that. But, but what's the pattern? What, what, what's truly the desire? Because our, our, our desires, our patterns in life will reveal whether or not the claim to be a believer is true and authentic. Like I said earlier, it is possible for an unrighteous individual to do good works and based upon their good works, it doesn't mean that that person is a child of God. It means that they are a moral being that is able to at some times do and fulfill some of the things that God's law requires. But it is not possible for God's children to habitually walk in stubborn, unwilling, unbreakable defiance unto God. And so, up to this point, 
in Paul's argument. The emphasis has been on the judgment of God. How a person can secure a right standing before the holy and righteousness of God has yet to be presented. He hasn't even addressed it. But there's not a single person who can be declared just or righteous before God on the basis of our own merit. That's what Paul's trying to, the picture he's trying to portray to help us to understand. Everyone stands equally condemned before God. We have no excuse. That's chapter 1. We have no excuse. I never heard about Jesus. It's not an excuse. Enough about God can be made known and has been made known unto men. His invisible attributes, divine power, all of that has been made known to us through His creation. So God has revealed Himself to everyone. And God will meet the person that's truly seeking after Him. And so that, that, that excuse isn't valid. I didn't know what God expected from me. I'm not familiar with the Bible. I've never read the Old Testament. So how can I be held accountable to any of that? That's not an excuse. Because God has given each of His creation that, that conscience. And that conscience bears within it at least a remnant of the, the moral code that God expects from us. And so, to this point, we have no excuse. None. Whatsoever. And Paul's yet to paint the picture of how do we have this hope? What can we do? Well, so that you don't have to wait for for that sermon, may you know that the only way that we can have peace with God is by putting our faith and trust in His Son. That's it. Believing in His Son. Not just being able to regurgitate facts about Jesus. No, belief is submitting our lives unto Him. It's acknowledging that on my own, I'm a mess. On my own, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. But I, I, I receive the work that was done on behalf of me. I, I receive the sacrifice that was made in and through Jesus Christ. And so I believe that. I believe that, that he, he died for my sins. That He was buried and on the third day that He rose. I believe that He's ascended into the right hand of the Father. And, and I believe that one day He is coming back to make perfectly right all of it. I believe that. I believe that to such a degree that I'm willing to bend the knee to submit and to surrender my everything unto Him. It's no longer about my wants, my desires, my goals. It all becomes about what does God want? What does God desire? What is His plan? What is His purpose for us? And here at this church, we're trying to communicate consistently that we understand that the way that we glorify God is through making disciples. Making disciples through the preaching, teaching, and proclamation of His Word. And by serving one another. It's the great commission and the great commandment all together. We serve one another with truth, love, and, and grace. 
And so it's making disciples, it's serving, and that's what we should spend our lives, our energy, our efforts in doing one of those, both of those things together. So we are. That's what we should do. This morning, we have to pause and consider what does our actions reveal about our claim to belong to him. And perhaps you're here, you're, you're honest, you're not even claiming to be his child. May you know that our prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will grant you the gift of faith so that you can receive salvation by the grace of God. That you confess and cry out your need unto him. And know that if you will, he will meet you every single time. He will not reject those that genuinely seek after him. May we all seek after him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your great love unto all of us. God, thank you for revealing yourself through creation and by revealing yourself through how you made us. Father, we realize that we have no excuse for rejecting you. There's no acceptable reason why we shouldn't submit and surrender our lives. So God, today, this morning, I pray for those that have yet to submit their lives unto you. I pray that they would let go of their pride, turn loose of their stubbornness. I pray that they would confess your Son as Lord and Savior of their lives. And Father, for all of us, I pray that we would be honest about our lives our actions, our thoughts, our desires. We all have room for improvement in life. There are things that we've done that we never should have done. There are things that we haven't done that we know that you've called us to do. God, sometimes we have thoughts, we have desires that don't line up with your word. And God, all of that, that's sin. Help us to acknowledge it for what it is. And not just acknowledge it, Father. Help us to confess it and, and to repent from it. May each and every one of us seek to surrender our lives, our heart, our will, our everything unto you. In this time of reflection, Father, I pray that our, our prayers would be genuine. I pray that we would make decisions in this moment that would fully honor and glorify you. Be with us during this time. May your spirit move among us. May you be glorified in what you see in us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.